And welcome to The Movie Passport, a podcast series about world cinema. Today, we'll be traveling to the country of Kuwait. My name is Duncan, or Valkyrus on the internet, and joining me to chat about Kuwait cinema, we have... Abdallah, Kuwait on the on Discord. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Abdallah. I'm so grateful to have someone from Kuwait to give us an insight into these films. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Before we start our main discussion, I'd like to give the listener a brief history of Kuwait and its film industry. But please jump in, Abdallah, whenever uh, you feel like to uh, correct me or add anything. Um, So Kuwait is a country in Western Asia and one of the Arab states that border the Persian Gulf. Most of modern Kuwait was once part of ancient Mesopotamia, uh, the region where the world's earliest civilizations developed. It served as the setting for the Battle of Chain, which the first Islamic Caliphate defeated the Neo-Persian Empire. In 1613, a fishing village called Kuwait was founded. The powerful Bani Utbah Confederation eventually settled there. And by the 18th century, Kuwait's ports had prospered and become the commercial center for the transit of between India, Afghanistan, and the Arabian Peninsula. Unfortunately, World War I and the Great Depression caused Kuwait's economy to decline. Its people were also forced to defend against incursions from King Ibn Saud, who wished to annex the country for what would eventually become Saudi Arabia. Kuwait returned to prosperity after the discovery of large quantity crude oil, the exportation of which was used to fund a major public work program that enabled citizens and migrants to enjoy a modern standard of living. In 1990, the neighboring country of Iraq invaded Kuwait without warning. In response, the United States led a coalition to remove Iraqi forces in a conflict known as the Gulf War. Summers in Kuwait are some of the hottest on earth, with temperatures of 54 degrees Celsius or 129 degrees Fahrenheit recorded in the last decade. Historically, most films exhibited in Kuwaiti movie theaters came from foreign countries, especially America. This is due to the fact that Kuwait is a relatively small country with a large population of foreigners. It wasn't until 1971 that the first feature film was released, entitled The Cruel Sea. It depicts the lives of Kuwaiti fishermen in the era before the discovery of oil. Another film, The Wedding of Zain, or Zain was produced a few years later. Famous Kuwaiti stage actors such as Soad Abdallah and Hayat al-Fahad have appeared in films. Kuwaiti distributors erected the only drive-in theatres in the Arabian Peninsula. While Kuwaiti film production was virtually non-existent during the 1980s and 90s, it cultivated a successful television industry that maintained a strong sense of Kuwaiti identity, while also attracting viewership throughout the Arab world. The 21st century marked a return to filmmaking with the release of dramas such as El Fasla and Ka Sita, and comedies such as Wedi Atkalan, and the end. Kuwait is generally more open and liberal compared to other Arab societies. Nevertheless, the government maintains the right to censor films they deem injurious to public order or morality. So, my question to you, Abdallah, is um, what is your connection to Kuwait? And um, what is your connection to Kuwaiti cinema? Have you watched many films? Did you watch many films growing up there? Well, I want to say, like, this was fascinating listening to the list uh, you just gave out. I didn't know most of the things you told me. Some of them were passing, Mm. uh, you know, some things I've learned in school, but I don't remember much of it right now. Yeah. So I'm not going to comment whether, you know, most of what you said was correct or incorrect. (laughs) Uh, One thing you said is about the TV is definitely true. There isn't much of uh, in terms of... uh, uh, Kuwaiti cinema in general. I don't think there isn't much uh, even beyond Kuwait, like in the rest of the Gulf, uh, in terms of movies, at least uh, not when I was growing up. I know lately they started creating more movies, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not that equated with them. But definitely with the TV shows, definitely I'm acquainted with the ones mm-hmm. that came out back then. Uh, in terms of types of movies people import or like the people consuming Kuwait, I would like 
correct and say it's not predominantly Hollywood. Uh, there's a lot of movies from the Egyptian cinema like that, that has a high demand equate, uh, and a lot of Bollywood movies also have high demand. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I have to admit I don't know much about Kuwait at all, other than because of its role in the Gulf War, that it has like a slightly better relationship with the U.S., Although that might not be the same today, but I knew like after 9-11, Kuwait donated lots of blood to the victims in the US and that it's a slightly more, more like liberal country than some of the other Arab countries. But uh, that's all I really knew about it. In terms of cinema, the only time I've seen it represented has been in like American films about the Gulf War, like um, Jarhead and Three Kings. But even there, it's not like showing you the people of Kuwait. It's just using it as a backdrop. Um, so yeah, I, I, I uh, confess I know very, very little about the country. So I was really glad to learn a bit about it and see Kuwaitis representing themselves uh, through art. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, again, like if you want to go back to cinema, I think it's predominantly the big, at least to me growing up, the mo the biggest chunk of uh, consumption would be, uh, like, uh, Arabic movies in general, mm. because, you know, pe people, don't like to uh, to read subtitles in general, and that's not unique to mm. to, to people of greater So it's like something I've noticed here living in the states. People don't like to see foreign movies much because they don't want to read subtitles. And I guess it's really tricky if you're a smaller country within that larger Arab world that's going to be dominated by other countries like Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia. Actually, I don't. This is not correct. So, within the Arab world, there are like more distinct regions. So, Kuwait belongs in the Gulf region. Okay. Uh, and Kuwait is the center of, or at least me growing up. I know things change, so my my information might be outdated, but it was uh, the center of kind of the Gulf media consumption or whatever. Like most TV shows uh, geared toward the Gulf audience uh, were producing. Really, a lot of talent. Yeah, a lot of talent from you know Emirates, from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia, from Bahrain. They would uh, from Amman. They would travel to Kuwait. Oh, really? Uh, I did not know that. I, I would not have thought that. But um, and what is the reason for that? Is it just because of all the money generated from the oil industry, or just its its location well, within the Gulf? I think money was all over. I don't think that was like the unique factor. I think that was the investment from. From the government itself, there mm -hmm. were more resources were geared toward, uh, you know, toward media. And I, again, like, don't don't quote me on this, but <laughs> but, but there was a, there was more push, there was more investments. That's why, like, the you know, TV and movies and even plays were you know were more supported by the government. I think in Kuwait, you know, initially. I mm -hmm. think later on, I think probably right now, the rest of the Gulf have have like the, the investments but but like definitely in the 70s 80s 90s definitely was initiated a lot by the government and so um i think you said you you grew up in kuwait but you've you've moved overseas now is there a big difference between um what life was like in kuwait when you were a kid or, or a teenager and um where you live now in the united states well there are differences, of course. Like you mentioned earlier, like the fifty-four degree degree Celsius summer. Yeah, I, I don't find that here mm. anymore. Uh, but like I'm living on the East Coast, so that might be different. Uh, yeah, maybe in the West Coast. So I'm, I'm not sure much about that. I don't know but, if any country can match that level of uh, <laughs> of heat. Yeah, I've only lived in the East, so I don't want to comment on. Uh, on what, it, what it's like in Arizona, or maybe in Santa Fe or Georgia's, uh, and I'd like I'd still continually, you know, continuously visit back home. Mm -hmm. uh, like it is a different culture, yeah, of course. I was looking at some pictures of uh, Kuwait City. With I'm, I'm sure the residents curse the sun for the heat, but the actual the side of the sun setting over the city is pretty amazing. I've never seen a city like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know which building you're looking at right now. Uh, if you want to share that picture, I'll, I'll take a look and see which part of the city. So it's the it's the building with the sort of spherical thing. It might be a religious building. Oh yeah, no, that that's a government building. This uh, round uh, building, yeah. Yeah, I love, Th these I are love it. Towers. <laughs> I think it looks amazing. And, and the cool thing about it is that it rotates. Like the the floor itself rotates. It's a, I think it's a restaurant of sort. Oh. And you can take a seat and yeah. Okay. 
the glass part is, is a rotating thing. It's, it's a cool building. It's, and it's an old building, so it's not new. It's, I think, from the 70s. All right. There you go. All right. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to add in general about Kuwait or Kuwaiti cinema? I think that will come up with the movies. Sure. All right. Well, let, let's get to our first film, uh, which you will be intro- introducing, Abdullah. Okay, so the first movie, Basia Bahar, or The Cruel Sea, uh, subtitle, uh, follows uh, the life of a teenager, a boy who's coming into manhood, whose name is Saad. Uh, and um, Saad is in love with a neighbor, neighboring girl. Her name is Noura. Saad comes from a very poor family. Uh, his dad used to be a barrel diver. He worked for over tw- 20 years. But he suffered an injury uh, from a shark attack, and he's been uh, in bad luck ever since. His uh, his mom, Latifa, is the family's breadwinner. She works uh, as a maid or a helper for for the for the neighbors. Um, Saad, as he's getting into adulthood, he wants to go into the pearl diving uh, profession because he fa- he expects. Uh, good fortune to come if he found uh, Dana, which is a big girl, and that would help him to marry the girl he likes and get his family out of out of poverty. His father, because of his injury, uh, is forb- forbidding him from entering this profession. And that's where the story starts. We can chat about where it goes later. And what did you think of the film? Did you enjoy it? So that movie, I've, I've always heard about it, uh, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, I haven't seen it before. Like, I'm glad that we did this, so I got to see this movie. I've heard about it from my dad because uh, this is the my dad would say, and even I talked to him before we, uh, before this recording, and he said that's the last movie he went to the theater to see because he wanted to see, it. and that was from 1972. So the last movie he actually wanted to see in theater. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I really liked it. I really liked uh, to see like a glimpse of what life uh, was like back then. Mm. And this is even not that long ago because the movie came out in '72 and was depicting life, uh, you know, 30 years earlier. Because pearl diving stopped around the mid 1940s, which mm. was a little bit shocking when I was researching it. Yeah, I um, I did like it. Um, I think I did find it a bit slow and repetitive, like with the dialogue. But um, I thought it was quite interesting in its social commentary. It was it was sort of looking at it was depicting poverty in in Kuwait prior to the discovery of oil when it was mostly dependent upon the sea. Um, it had some interesting commentary about class and arranged marriages. Um, and I thought there were specific sequences that were really compelling. Um, I found I was moved by the the relationship between the son and his father and the plight of uh, many of the characters trying to survive in this world with, with pretty limited resources. Um, I really like the underwater sequences. I thought they were quite, um, I don't know, sort of almost otherworldly. Um, I thought the um, the style of filmmaking was interesting. It reminded me a lot of uh, like the neorealist films of post-war Italy, where it was just kind of like everyday life. Um, it wasn't big, it wasn't dramatic, it wasn't larger than life. It was very much everyday life, trying to survive in the world. Um, and the way the sea was shot, I thought was interesting. It had like almost this kind of like godlike fury and power. Um, and the way the streets were shot was sort of, I felt very, I don't know, isolating. Like it felt like almost this empty city at times. The characters felt kind of trapped within it. Um, so yeah, it was yeah a bit slow, and I think it it, it was um it wasn't the film's fault, but the the version we saw was a version that looked like it had been taped off television and uploaded to YouTube. So it was it was pretty bad quality. So I think if you'd seen it in a cinema in a proper print, it would have been much better. But um even with that, I think I, I'm really glad I saw it. It was a really interesting window into a a culture I'm not familiar with and a time that um even is passed for that culture. Yeah, it is. It is definitely cool. I, I, you were telling me that you like the underwater scenes, and I was like, "What well, underwater scenes?" I couldn't see really much from the YouTube version. It was very blurry. It it was blurry. Yeah, I wish at least for those scenes I had seen a, a proper print. Um, but I was looking it up, and apparently that was uh, quite novel, even for the time. Like there had been underwater scenes shot. In Hollywood films, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I think was from the 50s, that had underwater scene. But um, 
certainly not in uh, Arab filmmaking that had never been tried. And the director was basically like, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. I'm just going to figure it out when we get to the water. And they had to basically rig up a, a machine that could that could was capable of filming underwater and just did it all on the fly, um, which I think is, yeah, pretty, pretty bold. I, I want to just give a little bit of tidbits about this movie I forgot to mention. is that this movie won an award at, at Damascus, uh, film festival, the mm-hmm. Tehran Fil- International Film Festival, festival, and one of Bryce at the Venice Venice International, like, I think, film prize or something. Mm-hmm. So those are also cool things that the movie got. Mm. In terms of the story, I think it w- was trying to do to trying to like to depict multiple stories at once, put them all together, like the the injuries that people suffer from pearl diving, mm. uh, you know the. The class, as you said, the the, the class divide. Uh, you know, what, I don't know if, if it came through through the translations, uh, but I like did notice those things. Like listening to the movie, is that Nora's dad works uh, as a a pearl merchant, and he's going into the like the pearl diving, basically, uh, you know, to t- to try to get closer to that specific like part of society, like. I don't know if it was translated as he a merchant or not. Uh, I don't remember that. I mean, I knew he was a merchant. I didn't realize he was involved in the, the pearl diving trade or with rise through the ranks. Yeah, it caught like there, there are things like, you know, I would notice, uh, you know, from the culture that I that this movie kind of like showed me showed me why we have those things. Mm-hmm. So one thing is that in Kuwaiti language, there are different words uh, to describe different types of pearls oh, okay and i thought it was and i thought it was really cool in this movie that they utilized those different types of names for the different sizes shapes of pearls and his goal was specifically to get dana which is like a big pearl mm. uh to basically to offset the poverty of his family so i thought it was really cool he wasn't just saying a pearl he was saying the big pearl right uh, right so that that was really cool uh, the, the, that I found the movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what or who did the translation for the version I watched, whether it was uh, filmed in another country and translated by their translator. But I'm sure I missed a lot of that stuff. Um, I was uh, trying to find a bit of information about this film. Um, there wasn't a lot. I found a couple of reviews from back when it was first released. Um, there was some information about the awards it received uh, and the historical context. Um, but I found a bit of an interview from the filmmaker who um, made several more films. I think he made three films in total Kuwait. He made this, The Marriage of Zine. Uh, I think it was a Lebanese poem and it was filmed in Sudan, um, which wasn't evident from the original Wikipedia article, but I showed you the video and you said, no, this is definitely a Sudanese <laughs> dialect or a Su- Sudanese version of, of Arabic, uh, which obviously I wouldn't know, yeah. but, but later found out that the director filmed it in Sudan. And then there was a third film, I can't remember the title, but it was set on the Silk Road. So was, I think it was a historical drama. Um, but his main motivation for making the film was this perception that Kuwait was this very rich and prosperous country, which, you know, it probably was to some extent at the time, but everyone was asking, you know, do you drive around in fancy cars and is there just money paving the streets? When he was visiting, you know, I think he studied in America for a bit and he came home and said, well, yes, we have fortunes because of the oil boom to some extent, but we also struggled a lot. Um, My parents struggled to survive, to scratch a living from the sea. And I want to show that. I want other people outside of our country to know what we went through. And also I want future generations to know what our parents went through before the oil boom, because this was a big part of our identity. This was who we were. Um, And the film, I thought it was really interesting because a lot of films about the past are very drenched in nostalgia. Like, you know, this was, this is what we were at our best. Whereas this is very much a film of like, this is the past, but it's a very, it's very much, there's a bitterness to it. There's almost a, a, a sort of a divorce from the sea. Like the sea is this really important part of our identity and it's where we get our bounty, but it's also caused us a lot of pain and heartache and we're willing to part from it and find a living somewhere else, which eventually became oil. So I thought that was kind of interesting that it wasn't, this romantic view of the past, it was very rooted in realism and suffering and this acceptance that, you know, times change and that can be a good 
Yeah, it's very cool. And the movie was also a big success, uh, at least locally. Is that what I've heard from my dad, from my mom, from my aunts and uncles? And it it is, you know, made an impact by show, and people really like showing the hardness of that part of uh, of the past, like what people went through, especially for people who who were around, who experienced uh, that that economy before the oil boom. Mm-hmm. And like he did hear some of the reaction from the people who. Experienced it firsthand. Like they, they, they did. Eat, like what I've heard is that he got a lot of pushback about a specific scene in the movie, which we can talk about later when we get get to it. Mm-hmm. But oh, but overall, was very well received. Like how he depicted some, you know, what people went through, mm. uh, how how much uh, the economy was really dependent uh, on the sea, whether it's as merchants or as pearl divers. Um, that's really interesting. I. I couldn't really find anything about the reaction to the film within Kuwait. Um, So it's good to know that at least it was received well in some places. Um, Because I wasn't sure because parts of the film seem kind of critical of society or Kuwaiti society or small town society at the time in terms of like the suffering it created, the division between the classes and the treatment of women. Um, I thought that the marriage sequence of Nora, the arranged marriage, was quite like frightening because it was very much told from her perspective as a woman who didn't want to get married um it's very much framed as a tragedy like these two star-crossed lovers that are torn apart by social pressures and social conditions so i was wondering if you if you knew much about the reaction to that particular critique of, of kuwaiti society I didn't hear much about that. The, the, that wasn't the controversial scene. Uh, there, there was a little bit. Uh, what I've heard about it is that it's over sensational. Sorry, let me. It's over dramatized. Uh, you know those types of arranged marriages. So like that. I don't know if you noticed is that he was struggling with her, right? Mm. And then all of a sudden he was praying. Yeah. So th- this is apparently a tradition: is that you would take like the, whatever you know the pride is covered with and you use it to pray before you consummate the, the wedding mm-hmm. and what i've heard is that i I, th- I think it's true but i think like what he depicted is true but people thought around that time it's uh it's not how typically it is because girls typically will be you know trained to to be obedient and then not to be that aggressive but i, I that's not the controversial one uh, the scene that i wanted to, to mention well, but that was horrific yeah the, the, that one was horrific like the rape scene was 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 horrific it was horrific to see it uh the the fact that people you know around that time dismiss it as you know part of life is you know speaks more about the harshness of you know what people went through back then and the whole sequence um of uh, nora being processed through the crowd with the garment over her head is quite um overwhelming like the the repetitive singing it's sort of it's almost has the effect of like waves crashing like just this relentless torrent of social pressure like the whole community gets together to force this thing to happen or ensure that this ritual is uh consummated and and yeah i don't know i just i really felt for nora it's not like it it shows uh how much she struggles and and she's felt like she was very sort of defeated through most of it like she was just walking along but then at the end when she struggles it was quite scary to see the, you know how viscerally afraid she was and you know it's a very um quick shot of her lying back but it's very um you know scary in its implications of what happens to her um so yeah that was sad like it's it's a very sad film and it, and it's both its male and female protagonists are struggling against the the system they live in the, the wedding also there is a big disconnect between the songs i don't know if what also was subtitled or not but no, the songs were the song religious wasn't. in nature right no the songs if you listen to 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 what they're saying they're like re- religious blessings mm-hmm. uh in, in either sides for him and for her and those those songs still continue they're still being used 
for mm. weddings. And I find it a little bit, after watching this movie, I find it a little bit hard to listen to the songs again. But those are like typical wedding songs that people would play. They're like, re- they have religious undertones, right? you know, blessings for the groom and the bride. Uh, what was even creepier is the mom looking in and trying to see the like her like she's looking to check if her daughter gets raped. It's like really unsettling, like mm. the whole ordeal with the mom. What was the controversial scene you? Oh, toward the end, the uh, pearl divers were they they thought he overflown the the the, the big uh, clam that you know caused his hand to, to to be stuck. So. Actual pearl divers, they saw they their reactions that well, that would never happen. It wouldn't be stuck in that big. Ah, uh, right, right, okay, unrealistic. Yeah, sure. Yeah, people yeah. die, uh, but they wouldn't die from that specifically. I, by the way, I do have a little bit more info if you want to ask about anything. Because I did ask my dad to give me a little bit more info about some of the things, some of the traditions, like. Uh, the thing that they did uh, when they were waiting for the uh, for the post to come back. Do you see that ritual? Waiting for who to come back? Sorry, the the post when they were, when the women were oh, waiting for the yeah. post. They did like we we. I, I got some interesting tidbits about that. What were they doing? Were they grabbing the sand or something? Yeah. <laughs> do you want to go to this right now? Yeah, yeah, sure, go for it. So yeah, to, do you want to set up the scene? Uh, so this is. Uh, towards the end of the film when uh, the pearl divers have been on the sea for several months and many of the villagers are waiting for it to return because one of the boats has returned and they said the other one's on their way. So I think the women were on their knees sort of grabbing at the sand. I can't remember exactly what they were doing, but the villagers are all sort of gathered around the horizon looking for the boat to arrive. So they did three three things, and they found out what they mean. So they threw something in the water. I don't know if you noticed that. So oh, that I thing, remember. And, like, and the cat, like they put a cat under it or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing they threw, which is like a weird thing, they threw a laxative. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because they thought around that time... Uh, if you threw the laxative, it will make the like the sea more, I don't know, forthcoming and will bring the missing people back. Yeah. Uh, they 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 did put a, a burned like uh, palm, uh, what is it called? Like a, like not a palm leaf, but it kind of like a branch of, of a palm tree. Hmm. And they burned it and they threw it. And because around that time, also people used to always treat sick people by burning their wounds. So it's kind of the same idea. You're burning the sea. And the final thing is that they dipped the, the cat in the water and they were waiting for the cat to cry. So if the cat cries, means the owner of the cat is coming back. Ah, so okay. These are weird rituals that I never knew about. And I thought they were they were odd. Mm. I had to ask my parents about them. And were they true? Yeah, they, these are all true. Wow. These are things people used to do, uh, you know, 100 years ago. Other interesting tidbits. I don't know if you noticed in the movie. So the the dad was in debt. I don't know if you if you if that if you caught that part. He was in debt. Yeah, I caught that. Yeah, to the uh, so captain. The re- yeah, to the cat. Yeah, no. So the, the way they used to they used to be compensated. The pearl divers they get a loan before they go before mm-hmm. they go pearl diving, and then once they get back. They would pay out their loan and whatever they have left over is like whatever they get like on top of it. If they have a bad season, they will be indebted Mm. uh, to to the captain. Right. So because of his injury, he got nothing and he was still indebted from that time. Oh, God. Yeah. That's tough. That that was interesting tidbit. Another interesting thing that I also had to get clarification uh, on is that the, the goat scene. I, w- I found it like, why were they, you know, taking their goats out uh, and, like for the guy to take them? So it turns out uh, this is an actual also tradition. Uh, people used to keep goats uh, in their houses. But every morning, uh, a shepherd will come in collects all the goats, uh, you know, from the village, take them outside, you know, for them to graze or get water or whatever they need and brings them back at the end of the day. So that's something people apparently used to do every day. And do you know whereabouts this film was meant to be set? Is that revealed in any of the line, in any of the dialogue? I think Quaid in general, like Quaid was like 
basically back then was like between east and west the city itself mm. and it's not like that big of a city it's uh so um i don't think they specifically stated whether it's like the east or west i would assume it's more of a west so when you say kuwait in general do you mean kuwait city or just general kuwait city when it was like i don't know maybe twenty thousand people living there wow and like there were like predominantly two neighborhoods okay you know either either you're from the east or the west side yeah but but they're still connected i, I don't think he specified uh, that the director uh, i don't know if you mentioned the name of the director uh should i say, say yeah, now or you, you, you better say it, it at the beginning don't, don't let me say it <laughs> okay let me give a rundown of who's in the movie if you want to insert it at the beginning sure so this movie was di- directed by Khalid Sadiq and uh, written by uh, Abdurrahman Saleh. And the movie stars a lot of people who became famous later on. And I definitely was watching the movie. I, like, I recognize a lot of them. So Saad, uh, which is the protagonist, was uh, played by Mohammed Al-Mansour. Uh, the dad uh, was played by Saad Al-Farai. The mom uh, was played by Hayat Al-Fahad, and uh, Creepy Groom uh, was played by Ali al All of them had distinguishing careers in Kuwait media in the years that followed. Yeah, and apparently they're all basically the same age in this film, and they had to use like makeup and basically just their performances to convey that they were the mother and father. Yeah, <laughs> that was interesting, yeah. I I, uh, I did yeah, like I like the performance of the dad. Um, there's a few scenes where he um, is struggling for, to decide whether he lets his son go or not, and he knows his pride is injured, and he wants to provide for his family, and that's very much what manhood is um, for that for that uh, family. Um, but he also loves him and doesn't want to let him get hurt, and he finally um, sort of. Uh, concedes and lets him go the son hugs him and then there's just a, sh- a flash of the son as a child running up and hugging his dad and that really tugged at my heartstrings i thought that was quite moving and just the the facial acting of him looking out at the water and just praying to god that his son is safe i thought that was all really yeah uh, i really liked it. i like the dynamics also between the the, the mom uh, and how she was looking out for her son and her would-be uh, daughter-in-law and she was like trying to to also like care for her by not letting her letting her suffer any scandal that in that specific village yeah i think that's another theme of the film is the relationship the parents relationship to the child and being able to let them go that struggle of like letting them go outside your protection so they can become an adult and how like gut-wrenching that can be and when you know how high the stakes are um, so that distance when they're all waiting for the ship to return is really, really tough. Um, we're sort of winding up, I think, on this film, but I, I was I was curious what you thought of the ending when it's revealed that um, Masoud has not survived, um, but one of his friends is able to deliver one of the pearls so that his death wasn't in vain, and then the mother casts him in anger. And she said it was really heartbreaking, and she said probably the best, line in the movie mm-hmm. and it was a shame that what was it was mistranslated so what she said she said she was speaking to the sea she said you switched the best dana which is dana's the biggest pearl the best pearl so you switched the best dana the best pearl and you gave me this uh, you know worthless piece of stone mm. which is the actual pearl yeah and she threw it at the sea toward that it was heartbreaking she'd rather have her son the real pearl yeah, and then then this piece of rock. Did you find it uh, interesting that when she threw it, I, I, I don't know, I got a flashback of Titanic. Uh, no. Oh, I don't. I don't think so. I, it didn't occur. I, I, were, I guess. I guess the, the like, fact of the value of the stone. Yeah, it is. It does recall Titanic, or maybe Titanic is recalling this film. Yeah, but okay, it's, it's both movies are about like searching for that expensive uh you know jewelry right that mm. that what is it the, the hard diamond right so that what it's called in Titanic? uh yeah i can't remember exactly. heart of the ocean heart of the ocean yeah heart, heart of the ocean and titanic and here they were looking specifically for the big pearl mm. and in in both cases uh, the, they throw it back at the ocean for two separate reasons um yeah but i think 
in both cases, it is this realization that the real precious thing was this relation with another person. Yeah. That was, it took them a while to realize. And that's where we sort of get the title of the film, which I've seen sort of different versions of. The English translation is The Cruel Sea, but I think you wrote that mm -hmm. the direct translation is like Enough Sea. Yeah, that would be it, Enough Sea. Which I think kind of speaks to that uh, message of like Kuwaiti society moving past the sea as the source of its life and bounty or something else. I think I think the, the enough part in this translation is not that enough as in enough we're moving on. I think it's enough misery. That's oh, okay. The, that's yep. what what it's implied by this type of enough. Sure. And you like you see it from like the different relationships people had with the sea. You know, they depend on it, and be mm. also like this weird rituals they would do toward the sea to to get their loved ones back. You know, the life revolves around it. And, you know, you got the goods and also you get the elves coming from. Yeah. You you did ask about, like, their gear. And I did do have a list of what they mentioned in the movie and what he got, if you want to, like, touch on that. Yeah, yeah, tell me. So, he in the movie, they, he did list, like, the things he gave his son. So, I, had to, I asked and I got, like, exactly what they mean. So, he got the nose clip. He got, uh, like, the special pad the uh, pearl divers use to, to sleep on boat. He got like this, the like the net thing, the basket that people wear around their necks to put their uh, the the clams in. He got the special suit, and he also got the weight from his dad. So all those things he got from his dad, handed down before he went on the on the pearl diving. I, I I couldn't figure out. Did they have any kind of breathing apparatus, or were they just holding their breath that whole time? They dive. Nope, you hold you hold your breath so the the way it works is that they they have that weight mm. you hold your breath you you go down and then you they would tug on the on the rope and people would uh, you know pull them back in wow yeah and that's why uh, he died uh, mm. because he couldn't get get back up and he had the weight on him to keep him down all right we might move on to our next film if that's all right yeah let's go so the next film is called Swarm of Doves, and it is a 2017 war film directed by Ramadan Hasrau. I'm sorry if that's... How do you actually pronounce it, Abdullah? <laughs> Give me a second. Let me try to Google him. Um, and it's set towards the end of the Gulf War as coalition military drive Iraqi forces into retreat. It follows a group of Kuwaiti resistance fighters as they struggle to defend their suburb against enemy soldiers seeking refuge from the battle battlefield. The a Swarm of Doves is essentially a siege film, with most of the action taking place in a single house as the resistance fighters exchange fire with the area enemy outside. It's a tense, nerve-wracking and claustrophobic action film with moments of pathos and heartache. Um, I was moved by the camaraderie of the soldiers and the insights into their lives before the war. Unfortunately, I found the ending very unsatisfying, and I couldn't quite follow the constant dove metaphors. But overall, I liked it. Uh, were you able to find the uh, director's name, Abdullah? I think I'm going to say it might be wrong. Uh, Ramadan Khasro might be wrong. Okay. I'm saying it. I'm saying if, uh, the, I googled it. So this is the way it's written. I don't know if you know much about how Arabic is written, but Arabic, you don't have like the short vowel. So I'm, I'm guessing what it is. And then there's the um, Arabic title, which is, I think it's Sarab al-Hamam. No, Sarab al-Hamam. Oh, okay. Okay. And does that translate to Swarm of Doves or something else? Yeah. It does. Okay. All right. So that is my brief thoughts on the film, but... Abdullah, what did you think? I I think it I, I really, really didn't like it. <laughs> uh, for one thing, they butchered the actual story. Oh, did they? Uh, so yeah, they did, and uh, a lot of the dialogue, like I felt, this was just bad and stinted. And the story, like the 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 story of the kid and his mom, was also a thought like filler. Uh, but you know, like it's a great story. It's worth you know learning about it, especially like. Or you know, Kuwaiti kids to learn about what happened on that day, about the people who died and what, what happened at that house. Especially that those in the movie, there are two in reality, the three houses that became museums that kids go to to visit in school trip. I did when I was uh, I think in middle school. Really, we did take uh, the, 
Yeah, we did take a trip to go and see those houses and like walked inside it. Wow. Uh, I, I like they didn't do it justice. The, this actual story, like the and like some of the dialogue was weird. Like the, some of it, like some things they they said was like they're like somebody wrote it in English and they Google translated it. And it's like no, this is not an actual. Ah. You know, say people would say yeah, like they said open fire, but they translated open fire. That's not how you would say it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the dialogue certainly felt melodramatic at times, and the um the main character whose name I can't remember is often like brooding and um this kind of like comedic banter between some of the other characters. So it kind of it kind of felt silly at times and then really serious at other times. Um, but yeah, I, I did find it. Um, and I thought the action was okay, but yeah, definitely um a bit bit hammy and like the 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 sort of evil. Iraqi intelligence officer was a bit over the top. I thought just cackling away as the uh, as the house was under fire. So yeah, I, t- I take your point. Um, but that's interesting that you actually went to the museum. Um, was it was it did it retain some of the damage that it experienced during the battle, or had they restored it all? No, no, it is preserved as is. Wow. You could, if you wanted to, you can go and visit and see, see the houses. Uh, I'm gonna put it in the DM if you wanna see what it's look like and i think i read it's called the el Kurain martyrs museum um what yeah. does it actually have in it is it all about the war or is it about other things as well uh they're preserved uh it's basically as it's stated as martyrs and they're trying to preserve what people did mm. to, to fight back yeah and this is one of the biggest casualties uh i don't know if you saw that picture i just sent you yeah yeah yeah, I can see. So you see where right. where the tanks basically struck this house. Yeah, there's a big hole in the... Yeah. So that's still like that. Yeah, I, wow. I think this image says from 2010, uh, but I think it's still still the same. It is an amazing story. What, what do you think the film was missing that it should have included to do the story justice? I think the dialogue, all of, all of it, like it's not realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that you're that a guy is about to die and all he's talking about is being patriotic, I thought that was bullshit. Yeah, it's not what not what pe- real people would talk. It's not like as, as uh, I don't know if you want to go to George since we were related. This is this boss cast and in a way related to Ice and Fire. Mm. You know, George got it right. That's not what people would talk about when they're dying, right? Uh, yeah, I found like the, the very patriotic kind of tone of it is over the top. Mm. Uh, you know, one thing, you know, that you touched on is the acting of the of the main guy, like the, the, the leader of that group. And he did. He was overacting, and I think that's probably a miscasting because he's a comedian, and I don't. I don't know why he was playing a serious role. <laughs> you know, that's one. The other, also the one of the other guys in that movie was like the the. the he was like stupid, uh, and that's not what the real guy w- was like. Mm-hmm. At least from what I read about the real guy, yeah, uh, like was be- being very rash and hot headed, and also that's bad acting and. The reason I think that's bad acting because they casted a musician rather than an actor in that role. Oh right, really? Uh, yeah. Huh. He he was like he he wasn't not just a musician. He's the musician who grew famous from uh, uh, reality TV because he I think he won or he probably was one of the runner-ups of hmm. like the uh, uh, Arabic version of uh, American Idol. It it was a, it was quite a patriotic film. Um... Like the opening is these little kids singing the anthem below the flag, and the kind of climax of the film is you know they've been banned for from displaying the flag this whole time, and they finally raise it above the building in this act of defiance against the tanks. Um, and it's the sense of camaraderie is very much uh, around you know uh, key identity and sacrificing ourselves for the greater good. I, I'm wondering if part of that was because it's one of the first films about the Gulf War, maybe there was pressure to, to make it this kind of gung-ho celebration, or not a celebration, but a kind of a uplifting story? I don't know. What do you think? This is kind of a problem not limited to this movie. There are a lot of bad TV shows that are pretty, uh, back at home, back in Kuwait. There are good ones that come every once in a while, but I, like, I, I'm not sure if the like the... The under like the the patriotic undertones is the reason. I mm-hmm. think probably it's uh, 
first draft syndrome. I don't think like they 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 went back and rewrote it or tried to do something with it. I'm I'm not sure if it's that's the reason. I think probably the other reason, which is some some things they got right, and I think they wanted to highlight, is the unity, uh, which is I think what escaped you, but it didn't escape me because uh, well, like of course you wouldn't be able to pick pick that up. Is mm-hmm. that they were trying to highlight how uh, you know this group, the group of people who fought in that house, uh, came from what are considered now kind of, uh, you know, not political allies in a way. So they, they highlighted like the two sects of Islam, like people were, were together, they were praying together, even though they belonged to two different sects. Oh, really? And they also highlighted, yeah. Okay. I, I noticed that. Yep. I noticed that. I noticed that even in the dialogue, but uh, which like, I wouldn't blame you. You mm. wouldn't know what it is. Uh, but if, if you, if you t- took a closer look at the prayer scene, you would have seen not everybody was doing the same ritualistic, uh, you know, prayer. Mm-hmm. They were doing different versions of it. Yeah. Uh, and but also there are things in the dialogue which I like. I saw it translated as is. And the thing is, like, you wouldn't know what it is mm-hmm. <laughs> unless you know what would that means. So those were that was like something they they tried. And the other thing is also the other two things in the divide in cultures between you know uh, rural and. Uh, and urban. Uh, they also highlighted that everybody who were fighting in that house, you know, came in from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. They were united. I think probably that's the main, the, like one of the main reasons they, you know, they made that movie is like to show the unity, uh, especially like you know lately. Uh, and I think probably in 2017, it was definitely around that time. You know, there was a lot of uh, in- instability. Oh, okay. Like politically, fighting between different groups yeah. or tension between different yeah, groups. Yeah, uh, yeah. I might not be up to today, so I might be getting facts wrong. But like around that time, and I think in the years prior, the parliament kept dissolving over and over and over because they wouldn't come to, you know, wouldn't see eye to eye. They wouldn't, uh, you know, get together and work together. There was a lot of. Uh, well, the the director uh, did say something to that effect which was, um, or maybe it was the producer. Either way, they said, the aim of the film is not to create any grudge, but to highlight the brotherhood, tolerance, and unity Kuwaitis experienced during the invasion. Maybe trying to capture some of that sense of unity uh, as an antidote to contemporary tensions. Um, One thing I did appreciate was that it did try to humanize the Iraqis to some extent, or, or at least some of them. In the interactions where one gets captured, the Kuwaiti soldier is saying, you know, why did you invade us? Why did you invade us? We're neighbors. Why have you done this? And the, the Iraqi soldier admits, you know, they, I'm a veteran from the eight-year war. They took my children. You know, if I don't fight, they'll hurt my family. Like, I have, I don't have any, I have as much choice as you do in this situation. Um, and even, you know, even his calling, I can get you out of this. I can get you out of this. And then there's another soldier who seems very reluctant to actually engage in combat and has memories of his father telling him about Kuwait and the fact that they're neighbors and will go visit them someday. So it wasn't, I mean, apart from the intelligence officer, it wasn't necessarily trying to demonize the Iraqi or individual Iraqi soldiers so much as presenting them as, um, as at least the infantry as equally victim as victims of circumstance yeah that was cool yeah i really like those those scenes the ones i didn't like is that one of the soldiers who was like having premonitions and that was odd they what? didn't see the point of it i don't even remember that premonition the guy who would see the the water turns into blood he would see the guy's dad oh. those were weird scenes yeah that, right like added added nothing they're trying to be i don't know clever and show is it foreshadowing maybe in a way but no that wasn't wasn't interesting at all it was just weird insertions of the movie the other thing i didn't quite connect with was the dove imagery or the dove metaphor i couldn't quite figure out what the narrator was trying to get at and then there's like an actual dove that one of the soldiers is caring for throughout the film yeah, that was weird. I don't know why. Like, I, I don't know if it's like related to. I thought I thought it was a poem because mm. something they said. I was like, no, it doesn't even rhyme like a poem. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's the point of the top. It's it's and like it, even the kid. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. It, it did seem like a sort of like an early draft. Like you know, put something in about doves. It's related to peace or you know Kuwaiti unity, and we'll figure it out <laughs> in a revision. But they never got yeah. around to it. 
And even like the kid and his mom was also a weird thing that has nothing to do with the movie. Like <laughs> they, it's, they're trying to force it to make us like a cohesion between mm. what the kid is like. No, that's like weird. And even like, another weird thing is that at the start of it, uh, which is you highlighted about like the patriotic thing that, that the kid would sing at the school. I was one of those kids mm-hmm. who would, who were like leading. Yeah. The thing is, there are three chants. They only said two of them in the movie. I don't know why they left out the third one. <laughs> that was interesting. Yeah. Right. The other thing I really disliked yeah. was the ending. It felt really. Uh, it just felt like they cut before they concluded anything. Um, like they didn't actually the, want to show the all the soldiers is... get killed. They wanted to end on a slightly hopeful note, but it just it just kind of fizzled out for me. So my gripe is a lot with the ending is that they showed that basically everybody died and that's not true. Uh, and they, they, they so okay, let, 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 let me dial back. So what they showed is something about like this group. So there were 31 people in total in that group, at least from me Googling. I might be wrong. Like what if I Googled might be wrong? Sorry. Mm-hmm. So there were 31 people in total. They started uh, as a kind of a guerrilla militia in a way, uh, attacking, and they stopped around November of 1990. They stopped because of the Iraqi forces uh, started to gather intelligence about them. And they switched their efforts from uh, killing soldiers toward helping the community. And that's why, if you, if you saw in the movie, the guy who's like spread, like delivering water to the neighbors. So that was like the reason that was put in the movie because that's what they were doing. Up until January, which is not where the story started. The story got us toward their ending, but around January, when the, the coalition's uh, forces started to enter, here where they resumed their their activity. Uh, that day, which is the, the toward the end of the war, it's actually two days before the end of the war, there were 19 people uh, in the house. The reason, uh, apparently, at least from, again, me trying to find information online, is that the reason... Uh, the Iraqi forces were at the houses that were trying to loot before they leave the area. Mm-hmm. And something similar to what they depicted in the movie, one guy jumped in over the fence and one guy shot at him and here where the whole thing escalated. Uh, out of the 19 people, three died, nine were taken hostages and were killed, executed later on. Mm-hmm. But there are people who survived and this movie doesn't show that anyone survived. Uh, Okay, so we're going to move on to our final film, which is called The Fires of Kuwait. So The Fires of Kuwait is a short documentary um, directed by David Douglas and released in 92. Uh, As Iraqi forces drew from Kuwait, they set fire to 100 oil wells. The massive blaze raged for 10 months, and Douglas films the inferno as though we are staring into the gates of hell. The documentary follows the international firefighting crews tasked with extinguishing the fires. Fires of Kuwait is both nightmarish in its den of the harm human beings can wage against each other and the environment, as well as hopeful in its depiction of how different nationalities and ethnicities can work together to find solution and help a demised... So... Uh, I liked this documentary. What did you think, Abdullah? It was cool like, to see like the, the effort they put in uh, to to put those uh, the, those fires out. I was thought it was really, really, really cool. I actually like seen that aftermath first time, so it was really cool to see how they were able to to stamp out those those, those fires. Yeah, and it was um, interesting to see. I mean, first of all, the images of the flames are horrifying like i've never seen anything like it and the effect on the um environment so in that sense just as a document of a disaster it's really valuable documentary but yeah as you say as the as the crews arrive and start to try and figure out what to do about the disaster i I felt i found that really compelling as well and the different approaches they have and the teamwork they show um was really interesting I, i thought it was funny how some countries like you know, thought up these elaborate plans, like the Norwegians put together this like jet engine that that um, blows the flame out, and then the Texans just kind of chuck dynamite down there and blow it up. But they both work; like they both um, serve a similar purpose. And then other countries sort of reversed the oil pumps and used them to drag seawater up to extinguish the flame. So really amazing engineering and, and um, collaboration. Yeah, I, I'm like really cool that they were able to capture like those. Uh those different techniques like the, the, the dynamite one was really cool like the idea like you saw it like exploded and all of a sudden there was out it was really cool 
it's a cool idea trying to 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 utilize that lack of oxygen with you know with just extinguish the fire that was a really really clever clever way that they did it yeah did you know how many oil wells this like entire all the teams that were involved were able to to, to extinguish many uh, fires? well i i read the over 600 oil wells were lit and then there was kind of like oil fields were set on fire as well and some wells were damaged um i assume they put them all out over 737 uh oil wells wow were, yeah it is it is scary yeah uh, and uh, they they reveal that the fires could have burned for like five to ten more years if there was no intervention. So it's really just like humbling to see, you know, the the for, the, the power <laughs> of Mother Nature and the ferocious uh, forces at work below the Earth's crust. It's scary. It reminded me a bit of Chernobyl in that sense, that miniseries. Um, yeah. And all the scientists trying to get together to figure out you know, very clear and rationally how to address this apocalypse that they were dealing with. You have to really have, you know, level heads around something like, and a lot of, a lot of intelligence. Especially that the not, not, uh, like not every well is the same as the next one because mm. you had some that high pressure, some had lower pressure. I don't know if you caught the, the thing that Sarah Akbar mentioned in the, in the, in the movie where she was talking about that specific oil well and she said like this is at the top and I, I think probably from the movies probably that had higher pressure or maybe it was producing more that specific one and that's why it was such a harder feat to distinguish to extinguish that specific fire i think another firefighter said something like every fire has its own personality like you can't address them all the same because they've just got different elements and they just move in different direction there's so many variables that um each each fire is unique the total apparently seventy one percent of all oil wells were were burning wow. at the, the start of their effort. And, and so, so you mentioned Sarah Akbar, and I think apart from the narrator, she sort of gets the most dialogue. She is one of the local chemical engineers. Um, so there was, as well as all the international crews, there was an actual Kuwaiti crew which had the most knowledge of the land itself, obviously. Um, and she was one of the main uh, firefighters, the Kuwaiti team. I think she had expertise in the, uh, on the oil itself, the reservoir. So she knew what's going to happen, like in terms of pressure, or what's going to come out of the oil well. And that's why she was, you know, part of that team, is mm. for her to, to get the, like the geology part of it, to help out, uh, you, know, you know, by figuring out what's going to be the, the best, uh, you know, course of action. Now, you mentioned at the start you've actually visited these oil fields. I did see some of the, the destruction, you know, as what is it, as recent as probably 2016, 2015. There were still remnants of uh, like the, the, the like the tar wow. on the ground. You see some remnants. There, there was a cleaning effort the years after, but like as recent as 2015, there were still... You know, you, you you could see it. You could see you know black desert or some parts of the desert. I think another thing that struck me was the engineers talking about not being able to see the sun. That the the smoke was so thick that it was constant shadow, and they just couldn't see the sun. And the first time they saw the sun, kind of indicated that they were making progress. Yeah, that was scary. Seeing like the sky itself all black. And like, and it's you know, especially in the part of the world that doesn't get clouds at all, to, to see like the, the the sky being that dark, it is it is scary. Yeah. Uh, another thing they touched touched on in the movie is related to the mines. That's also another thing. Like growing up, we had to be wary of. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't go to the to the to the desert anymore because people used to go camping in the desert, but they you know. Especially growing up at the start, at this like the years following the war, we couldn't go right away because of the, of the dangers of you know hidden mines, uh, you know here or there. Mm. But they started clearing them, you know, yeah. year after year. But but they, there there were still issues with the mines. Uh, again, as recent as 2015 or 16, there are leftovers undetonated, wow. hidden under the sand. Yeah, they're scary. Um, 
I, I did want to mention there is there was another documentary about the oil fires released in 1992 and it was made by Werner Herzog, the German director. And it seems to be a very different documentary. It's not really providing any historical context. It's kind of just presenting the audience with imagery of the fire and the post sort of destruct destruction scape. That's more of a I haven't seen it, but it got quite a lot of critical acclaim. I would be interested in, in checking it out. And if you're interested in this topic, that might be tracked down. I think they're both on available on in fact all three films looked at are at to varying quality. No, that's that's really cool. The, the image I think that that I you know associate with also with the fires are the wildlife. Uh that it, I'm trying to find it actually. <laughs> I'm googling it. Uh, can't find it, but like the, you see, like the, the wildlife is drenched in oil. What sort of creatures? You mean like birds, birds and things? Birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, okay, I've just googled it. And I'm not able to find it. Yeah. Uh, actually, yes. Here is the one that I'm going to put it in the chat. Uh, so it's a bunch of pictures, but one of them is one of the famous birds, a pelican, maybe. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of um, the BP oils in the Gulf of Mexico. Very sad images of pelicans drenched. In- One of the things is that there used to be, I think, a few uh, like wildlife reserves, but mm-hmm. a lot of them got destroyed All right. in the, in the years following. But yeah. All right. Um, so we're winding down towards the end of the episode. But before we go, I was wondering if there's any other uh, Kuwaiti films you'd like to recommend to the audience or any Kuwaiti films you haven't seen. But I, I, As I stated probably earlier, Kuwait is more of a TV rather than a movie scene. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind watching eight episodes, uh, there are comedies from like the 70s and 80s that are, you know, worth watching because those are things I grew up watching. So... Definitely, uh, there is Darbus Zeleg, which tells the story of uh, a family who her house is being bought out by the government. And uh, the reason the government was buying it is to try to enrich the family and try to to develop uh, like the inner part of the city, try to make it develop the city itself and move people toward the suburbs. And this one just tells you know how people deal with you know, wealth, like a big windfall of money that falls into their laps. It's very cool. Uh, you know, one thing probably wouldn't fly out, uh, you know, for conservatives in, in America is that, you know, one of the characters uh, is a guy in drag. So that might not <laughs> might not work out for, you know, conservatives here in the States, but uh, that's a cool show. Another one uh, from the early 80s TV show, Khaltik uh, Masha, it's about uh, also another comedy is about a very controlling mother. Yeah, she has three kids, actually four kids, three boys and a, and a girl. And she's very nosy into their personal lives to the point that she had she insisted that all of her boy, uh, her, her sons live uh, live at home with her. Even <laughs> though they're married and they have their own kids, they wanted them to be living under her nose. Oh, God. She wanted to do the same with, with her daughter, with her brother-in-law, but he didn't want to live with her. But she's so controlling that she had the whole house uh, bugged with cameras and she's spying on everybody, whatever that they say here. Mm. It's a very funny TV show that mm. just like shows like uh, the point of it is letting go of your kids and trusting them. But it's very funny, like seeing her, how she kind of overhears what people say about her. <laughs> nice. And is that available <laughs> on Netflix? Uh, yes, I can try to find uh, One of the problems I found was actually tracking down a lot mm. of these shows. Um, Kuwaiti cinema isn't as readily accessible as some other country. Yeah. Netflix has a few films and it has uh, even more TV shows on it. So that might be one option. But I don't know if there's a, if there's a particular streaming service that caters more to Arab films. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I'm good. I found Darbuza, like the first one I told you about. It's on YouTube, but I don't know if it has subtitles. I would doubt it. Let's see. Uh, so that... Yeah, no, there are no subtitles. Oh, no. Sorry. Uh, and the other one. Uh, okay. It's also available on YouTube. Is it subtitled? That's the question. So posted it. Uh, yeah, no, there are no subtitles. Sorry. Mm. No, there is. There is subtitles on this one. Okay. Okay. So that's uh, ba- Babala? Yeah. So, like, do you see the, the scientist? Yeah. The, the one? Yeah. 
Okay, so yeah, that so that one has subtitles. Okay, all right. Um, there's a couple of films I was kind of interested in that I came across. Um, one was called In Paradox, which is on Netflix, which looks like a science fiction kind of film where someone goes to like an ancient temple and has some kind of psychedelic experience. Um, it's on Netflix. The trailer looks good. Um, there's a comedy called Wedi at Kalam, which uh, looked pretty funny from the trailer and it's got a few awards. And um, then there's this kind of another comedy called The End, which is about like a, I think like a vampire or Count Dracula comes to Kuwait. And there's a lot of like sort of Bollywood style dancing that looked kind of fun. So um, I might check those ones out in the future. Um, that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, I believe they're all on Netflix. Um, my last question is, are there any other countries you'd be interesting, interested in covering on a future episode? Of course, if, you, you know, if you're expanding to the rest of the Arab world, that would be cool. Like Egyptian cinema is very rich, especially yep. like starting way back. I don't know, maybe in the 40s, I think they have. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Like they have black and white movies that I grew up watching. There's also uh, Lebanese cinema, also cool. Uh, but yeah, those are definitely worth worth investing time into watching. Egyptian cinema, you know, especially because they have a much uh, longer and a lot of, and it is predominantly about movies. So you'll find a lot of uh, options. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, I'd, unlike I'd, like the Kuwaiti cinema, which is very limited. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I, I've always wanted to watch Ky uh, Cairo Station, so I'd love to do an episode on Egypt um, or Lebanon or um, Algeria is also a, a pretty big uh, film industry, and I think Bean has expressed in interest in but on that if you'd like to do it at all. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, it's great to have people from you know with some like local knowledge of some of these countries and, and sort of knowledge of the language so that that's great thank you so much um, that brings us to the end of this installment of the movie passport let us know what you thought of this episode and if you have any other kuwaiti movie recommendations uh, let us know what other world movies you'd like to hear us discuss you can leave comments or questions on our wordpress page or join us on the vassals of king's grave discord server i'd like to thank my fellow host abdullah for this episode and thank you for listening goodbye or as the kuwaitis say famanala famanala <laughs>